This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to another episode of All Things Considered CX. I'm your host, Bob Asman, the founder of Innovative CX Solutions, a past chairperson of the CXPA, and a practitioner with many years of transforming global operations and designing better customer experiences. Together with our guests and listeners, we seek to discuss, challenge, and create new understanding about how to inspire better experiences in response to ever-changing customer expectations. Hello and welcome to another episode of the All Things Considered CX podcast. I'm your host, Bob Asman. Glad to have you back for another episode. And I think uh, a really interesting episode this time because my guest Howard Tursky is here to talk about uh, digital and man, is that a hot topic right now? So we're really glad to have Howard joining us today. We'll get into the topic in just a minute. But Howard, if you would uh, introduce yourself to our listeners, please. Sure. Well, thanks so much for having me, Bob. Um, well, um, I'm Howard Tierski. I'm the CEO of a company called From, the Digital Transformation Agency. We do consulting and digital uh, design and development for many uh, apps and websites that you quite possibly use. Clients include um, Transamerica, Airbus, uh, major sports leagues, NBC, the Avis Budget Group, and, and many others. And uh, I've been doing this type of work for a couple of decades already, uh, and uh, our passion is really just try to make people's lives better, even if just a little bit better, even if it just makes it a little easier for them to have their ticket uh, to a sports event or, or a little easier to know when the bus is coming for their rental car or uh, you know a little better experience of dealing with their 401k and their retirement planning or whatever domain that we're working in. Our goal is really just to help support the idea that digital is a force for good. And uh, we can be a part of that. And, and that's our passion to show, makes us show up for work every day. You know, Howard, I really love it when, when guests start out talking about the vision and passion for their company or their engagements and so forth. And, and surprisingly, it doesn't always happen. And so just hearing you with that intro is really fantastic. And, and, and I think that's what it's all about when it comes to, to digital and what you've been working in. So, so Howard, tell me this, how do you get into this field? How did you, you know, did you go in with it deliberately? Did, what was your background, your education? Share that with our listeners a little bit. Yeah. Well, particularly when I got into this field, there was no normal path. Today, I think there is, but I still find a lot of people who've taken unusual paths. But when I started, you know, digital, I, I was, you know, I started doing uh, websites in, uh, 1994, something like that, when it was still uh, unclear if it was really any commercial application for the the World Wide Web. So um, at that point, if you wanted somebody who had experience designing a website, you know, call the University of Illinois because they were all there. (laughs) So, um, uh, you know, how did I get into it? I Well, I started out in the theater and film and television. This was my original training. Uh, I went to NYU and uh, then actually uh, went to LA and went to USC and studied these things. And I was very passionate about creating experiences for people, storytelling, the interfaces and integration of, of human talent and technology and how that could create great experiences for people. And I envisioned focusing on doing that through uh, you know entertainment of different forms. And at the same time, uh, I had to I was sort of directing theater and I was also needing to actually pay my rent. So I got jobs working, uh, doing computer graphic design on Macintosh computers back in the day. 
of the Apple II FX and CI and similar models, if anyone remembers them. And um, I got involved in, I guess you could call it corporate communications and the application of technology to create better corporate communications, which included storytelling, which included collaboration between, you know, human talent and technology and many of the same things that I enjoyed in, uh, in theater and film and television. And so um, that sort of began me on a journey that got me involved. I, I wound up working for Ernst & Young Consulting, doing that kind of work right around the time that the, uh, well, it was really before the internet was being born, but we were doing things like uh, kiosks and, and CD-ROMs and design of interfaces for very early client service systems, actually. Um, I remember working with PSE&G back in, gosh, might have, must have been like 1990 or 91, designing the little icons for a dial-up system to trade gas and electricity credits between major um, uh, uh, energy companies. So, um, you know, it's a, you, had, you had a 16 by 16 pixels to make your icon, and it was supposed to represent something like, you know, uh, a faucet, uh, you know, uh, with water or something like that. Very, very challenging <laughs> when you only have 16 pixels in each direction. Um, but in any case, uh, and, and uh, I wound up um, sort of being in the right place at the right time because uh, I was working with a large consulting company at the time, and their clients were starting to ask them about the internet. And at a mm. time when, you know, they would look around and say, well, well, who knows anything about graphics and, and this thing called the web? And there were very few people, and I was one of them. And uh, so the next thing, you know, I was, you know, an expert because expert is a relative term. So <laughs> I, uh, I wound up, you know, working with large brands on their first websites. And um, that was kind of how I got into the space. And, and ever since, uh, it's been a fascinating journey and an opportunity to really continuously for multiple decades work on the same very same problem, which is digital presents all these opportunities. How, how do they interface with how, how a company can make more money, better serve their customers, reduce their costs, create a better employee experience? Wh where does digital have the opportunity to do that? And how do you go about doing that effectively? And what kind of transformation is necessary in a company in order to be able to take maximum advantage of digital? And that's the, the those are the questions that I've been wrestling with and, and wrestling collaboratively with a whole ton of, you know, Fortune 1000 type clients for, uh, for 20, 25 years. Mm -hmm. And, and Howard, that's, that's a really interesting career path. And that's why I love to ask that question early on in our discussion. What, what's the, what's the background in with from as the name of your digital transformation agency? Yeah. Well, when I left, I left, um, I was started with Ernst Young uh, Consulting. And then at a certain point they got bought by Capgemini. And so I was with Capgemini, another great consulting firm for a number of years, between the two of them, I was there for about 15 years. And in 2008, I decided to uh, go out on my own. Um, I, I really feel um, uh, very appreciative for everything I learned working there and got to the point where I felt like I had learned enough and I could uh, run a business like this myself. So uh, we st I started a company. Initially, it was under a different name. It was under the name Moving Interactive. And we started focusing on doing digital projects for media and entertainment companies. Uh, our first client was NBC Universal. We did the websites for Universal Studios theme parks. And um, we've been working almost continuously with NBC Universal ever since for 15 years. They've been an amazing, amazing client across a wide range of whether it's NBC News or Oxygen or various cable channels or their corporate division, et cetera. So very, very um, great partnership with them. And um, at some point along the way, uh, we made an acquisition of another company. And when we did that, we decided to maybe consider rebrand. The question is, do we keep one name, the other name? We ultimately went through a process of 
looking at what we were doing for clients and the best way of positioning our brand in the marketplace. And we decided to rebrand the whole thing. And that's when we came up with the name uh, from the digital transformation business. And uh, it's a little bit of an unusual name. Uh, that was part of our goal. People say, you know, um, very few companies are, are are named with a preposition. And so we figured, well, good. You know, uh, you want to be remembered. There's a lot of agencies with weird names like, you know, Blue Iguana, you know, or Red Planet or something like that, you know. And we didn't just want to be another wacky sounding name. We wanted something that really connected to what it was that we we really do. And also something that was short and memorable. And And what we really do is help companies get from where they are to where they need to be help them get from vision to victory. And so as we looked at different ideas and taglines, we just kept seeing that word from in there. It's about a transformation. It's about getting from some place to some, to some other place. And so um, ultimately, you know, we came up with a bunch of different ideas for names, but ultimately we just settled on, let's just be from, because that's really what we're about. How do you get from one place to another place? I love it. Sometimes the, the most intriguing name is sitting right in front of you. You just have to recognize it. And I kind of guessed at that when I was doing some background work on you, but I wasn't sure. So that's what prompted the question. So um, listeners, uh, Howard has written a book, Winning Digital Customers, and he also writes some very interesting and intriguing articles on LinkedIn. So if you don't follow him, I would strongly encourage you to do that. So let's get into it now, Howard. Let's talk about Winning Digital Customers what was your thought process in writing the book and, and what are uh, some things you could share with us about this, uh, this area of winning digital customers? Well, sure. Um, well, for, as I said, for decades, I've been working on one problem, which is how do you, how do you help companies more effectively use digital to improve their business? And along the way of doing that, something very important happened in the marketplace, which is we went from digital being a kind of a, interesting experimental channel that only um, kind of, you know, more uh, out there, innovative or early adopter customers were playing around with. In the early days, the first websites that we created, you know, most people wouldn't even know how to, how to get to a website. Today, it couldn't be more different. Um, today, the vast majority of customers are living what I call a digital lifestyle. Um, they have adopted methods, digital methods of doing most of the tasks and things they do in their life, whether it's banking or shopping or learning or dating. It's hard to imagine any area planning their time, communicating with their friends, hard to imagine any area of life, making reservations, shop, you know, buying your groceries, planning your meals. It's all or almost all uh, done with your phone or your computer or your tablet or whatnot. People sleep with their phones, the side of their bed. Seven, one study said 70% of people sleep with their phones, the side of their bed. We look at our phones between hundred and 200 times a day and so on and so on. And so these people, and there are exceptions, not everybody lived this lifestyle. Um, there was that great, I don't know if you saw that great series on HBO. I think that Martin Scorsese did about Fran Leibowitz. Did you see that? I haven't. No, I will now. So do you know who Fran Leibowitz is? She's like a, a yeah, satirist comedian. Anyway, mm-hmm. the reason I mention it is because she uh, doesn't use a computer, doesn't have a smartphone. Um, you know, she she is uh, uh, you know she types her she's a writer, uh, you know, very very well known writer. She writes books and such on a regular typewriter, you know, and that's so unusual that they made a miniseries about her. You know, like <laughs> that's extraordinary, right? Right. Um, and, and and so the, the the way that we were all living. Uh, uh, you know, when I was a kid, 
is now, uh, you know, a, a, a rare oddity that is deserving of Martin Scorsese creating a miniseries about her. So, um, you know, but, but other than her and a small number of people who are perhaps along those same lines, we're all living that digital lifestyle. And so the reason I mention that is because that, you know, companies, they need to be thinking about competing for those customers. That's what I call digital customers. And I call it that to remind ourselves that these are people they're living that digital lifestyle. And if you are still trying to connect with customers the way you were 20 years ago, you're probably not succeeding because your customer has changed so much. And by the way, COVID accelerated that transformation even more. And of course, very few companies are doing it exactly the same way they did it 20 years ago. Everybody's at least got a website and some basic digital capabilities. But the reality is if your customer has run 25 yards and you've only run 10, then you're, you're way behind. There's a great, uh, quote that I love that Jack Welsh said back in the 80s. And Jack Welsh, of course, the famous CEO who turned around General Electric and I think 10x their stock price or something. He said back then of companies that when the speed of change on the outside of a company exceeds the speed of change on the inside, the end is near. And gosh, you know, most big companies today, if we speak to executives of big companies, they would say, oh yeah, the speed of change on the outside of our company is way faster and the speed of change on the inside. And so we have a lot of companies that are threatened today and, and a lot of companies that have already gone out of business. I just saw Toys R Us is coming back after years and you know, Circuit City and so many of great brands that just couldn't manage to transform fast enough to remain relevant in this extremely digital world. So I think that every brand, you know, has, you know, the digital world of digital has transformed from uh, an, an experimental thing for early adopters to something which is life or death. And so, and so that's why I wrote the book because we've spent years trying to help companies cross that chasm, make that transformation. And some have succeeded and some have failed. We've had some amazing successes. And we talk in the book about some of those and the work we've done for General Motors and, and other big companies. But we've also seen a lot of failure. We've seen a lot of transformation efforts that didn't succeed. Bill Gates says, uh, success is a lousy teacher. <laughs> and uh, I, I agree. I think that, you know, we learn the most from the things that we've seen that don't work. So the book was an opportunity for me to sort of take 25 years or whatever it is of experience of, of, of working this problem. And as a result of that, having, having seen what, what works, or at least a, a, an approach that works, there may be others that work, but I know there are many approaches that don't work. And so I tried to lay out in this book for anybody who's trying to lead a company or play a role in transforming a company to really be one that can succeed in today's digital world. Uh, how do you go about it? And we define in the book a five-step process, and we go into great detail in each of those five steps. And actually, I provide a, a website that you get the password to when you buy the book that goes into even more detail on exactly how you go about those five steps that are you know, uh, proven to deliver a predictable result of helping companies transform at a time when many companies that try to transform wander around and have many failed projects. Gartner says, I think it's 70 plus percent of digital transformations fail. And I'm hoping that this is a blueprint to avoid, to, to help you be in the other 30% or even better, help change that statistic entirely. So 70% of digital transformations don't fail because uh, it's not necessary. There are proven ways to be successful. Fascinating, Howard. And, and, and as you look at this and kind of <clears throat> maybe what themes arose from your um, vast involvement with these brands, is there... Is, is there perhaps one item that rises to the surface that 
makes a successful transformation and one item that rises to the surface that makes an unsuccessful transformation, realizing there are many factors, but just things that you might have run into more than one time. Yeah, sure. There are many, but I'll I'll pick a couple. Um, Successful transformations are driven by customer insight. And many transformations are not driven by customer insight and many of those are not successful. And what do I mean? Well, you know, we talk about digital transformation. So what does that mean? Well, obviously transformation is just a fancy word for change, right? Well, there's a lot of ways a company could change. Just because you're changing doesn't mean you're making your business better. There are plenty of opportunities to change for the worse, to invest millions and millions of dollars into changing for the worse, changing in a way customers will be less interested in what you have to offer, ways that will make you less competitive. Clearly nobody wants to do that. But I mentioned it to make the point that transformation has to be steered. It has to be navigated and figure out what is the vision of, the, of where we want to go. And so, so how do you do that? Because, you know, there are so many different opportunities. <coughs> transformation often involves changing, you know, not just allowing people to order on a website, but, but rethinking your products, rethinking your services, rethinking your, um, rethinking your uh, business model. So, um, so, so the customer, so the, so the question is, if you're going to make changes to all these things, how do you know which direction to go? And the answer is, it has to be based on what's going to drive customer behavior. Because one of the things that I always talk about, and I think is just an important North Star, is to think, what makes a successful business? I mean, there's a lot of things, but I think there's one thing that stands way in front of everything else. And that is, are you able to successfully drive customer behavior? Because if a business can get their customers to do what they want them to do, you know, to buy, to buy more often, to tell their friends, and that includes getting to not do the things they don't want them to do, like call their call centers every day for hours on end for support, sue them, post negative reviews, et cetera. If you can get your customers to do what you want them to do, you've probably got a really great business. And actually, it will kind of uh, mask uh, or hide uh, a whole bunch of possible flaws and faults that there might be in your business because you're just doing so well, because you're, you're driving customer behavior. And if you can't successfully drive customer behavior, then it kind of doesn't matter if you've got like the world's best ERP system or a really, you know, cracked legal department or, you know, whatever else, right? You're not going to have a successful business. So this is the number one most important thing. So if you're going to transform, you have to be transforming in a way that makes you more competitive for customers, that delivers a better experience for customers, that makes customers more, you know, want to do business with you to prefer your brand more over others. And so that means you need to really understand your customers. And most unsuccessful transformations are driven by assumptions about what customers want. And those assumptions are often wrong. Or, and sometimes companies are overconfident that they, they know if we do this, that, and the other thing, customers will have, it won't it be cool if we have an app that has these features or lets customers do things in a certain way? Well, Maybe if you understand your customer well enough, but there are many examples of products that have been created that customers looked at and said, you know, I don't care for this. I don't want this. This doesn't meet my needs. And so the first step in the five-step digital transformation process that I talk about in my book is understand your customer. And we spend more than a hundred pages talking about, okay, how do you do that? And a lot of it is research, different types of research, whether that's surveys or interviews, observational analysis, looking at various data sources like social listening, like analysis of transaction data, uh, foot traffic data, et cetera, et cetera. And so without going into all the, trying to go through all that detail here on a podcast, I think that that is the number one thing. Successful transformations are based on 
a focus on delivering a certain, driving a certain customer behavior and on understanding the customer well enough to be able to navigate that transformation to create an experience that will drive that behavior. I think that's the number one sort of success criteria. Mm-hmm. And there, you know, there's so many things that, that can create failure. One is if your transformation is focused on technology because nobody cares what version of SAP you're running at. You know, nobody cares uh, you know, <laughs> what kind of stack you have or whether you're in the cloud or not. I mean, there may be people at your organization who care, but certainly vendors who want to sell you something who care. Maybe even uh, analysts who care, but your customer doesn't care. Your customer only cares about the experience that you're delivering for them and the product and the quality and the timeliness and the accuracy and you know how, how good their experience is. Now, of course, you may need all kinds of technology in order to be able to give the customer the things that they care about. But if you focus on the technology, you know, you're letting the tail wag the dog. And so I see a lot of companies that are investing heavily in technologies with either with, without being clear on how they're going to actually improve the customer's experience, or as I said earlier, based on a sort of a vague hypothesis that, oh, surely this will be better for the customer. But in fact, you know, that may not be true at all. It might even be the right technology, but it's not just a question of picking a technology. I mean, moving to the cloud might be a fine thing to do, but in moving to the cloud, how? And what kind of features and capabilities are you implementing for the customer? Getting that right is is the difference between success and, and going out of business, I think. So, so that, that clarity of focus, I think, is the number one most important thing. You know, it, it, it's really interesting to hear you talk about both success and failures, but in particular, the failures being centered on technology, because my experience has been oftentimes that companies invest in the technology first because they want to fix their experience um, or, you know, respond to customer, the voice of the customer, but with no clear vision or strategy in mind. And I've had recent experiences where um, uh, a retailer will send you a link when you're going to get a delivery and um, you can track your delivery. The, the problem is, is that in on two separate occasions, the deliveries were totally wrong. That wasn't tracking correctly. The, it missed the delivery windows, all kinds of things happen. And, uh, and, and you think to yourself, you know, this is a good idea that was executed poorly. And it, yeah. and it goes to what you were talking about. It related to technology. It, so somebody thought this is a great idea. If you order furniture from us and you set up a delivery window where you can track your truck. So, you know, when that truck's going to be at your front door and then the, then the, then it fails. Yeah. Well, you know uh, there's, there's the right vision. And then there's the question of execution. Actually, one of the things we talk about in the book is the three reasons products fail. And one of them is the wrong vision, which is kind of what I was talking about before. You know, you're building something that isn't really what customers want anyway. You're talking about a second one in a way, which is maybe customers do want to be able to track the truck and know exactly when the, 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 the company is going to come to move the furniture or whatever, but, but it doesn't work. So now you have a failure of execution. You might have had the right vision, but you failed in execution. And the third way, by the way, is, is lack of awareness. You can have the world's greatest truck tracking application that's what people want and it works. But if people don't know it's there, they don't click, they don't find out about it. Well, then, then you're not getting any value from it. So when we, whenever we look at something that's failed, we always want to look at those three areas because almost always it's either one of those three areas or it's a combination of those three areas. The wrong vision, the wrong execution, or a failure to create enough awareness. Mm-hmm. That, that's really excellent. 
you know, Howard, I'm continually amazed that organizations of some fairly substantial size still are not where they need to be from a digital standpoint. They're still trying to take their website and throw it onto a mobile app and say that we have a mobile app now. And, and you've talked about the successes and failures, but in your experiences, what is taking companies so long? I mean, think about your background that you talked about from the 80s when this began with the internet and so forth. And here we are with companies still struggling with this. I don't get it. What With somebody with your background, what are you seeing there? What is going wrong? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think you're right about that. But before I answer your question, I want to point something out, which is, there are a bunch of companies that are doing a great job. The New York Times, HBO, Federal Express, Starbucks. You know, there was a time when it looked like all the companies that were doing a great job with digital were, you know, what we used to call pure plays, you know, digitally born companies, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Airbnb, Netflix, and so on, so on. Companies that for the most part, maybe Netflix was a, in a way pre-digital, but in a way not because you were still ordering online. Um mm-hmm. You know, these were these were comp- the companies that, that got it, right? They were the Silicon Valley companies, et cetera, or Seattle. Um, you know, and but, but how could Citibank ever do it? How could Walmart ever do it? You know, how, how could McDonald's ever do it, et cetera? Today, you know, Walmart is the number two largest e-commerce retailer in the United States after Amazon. A, a, a clearly a legacy, non-digitally born company. Um, Apple is the number one digital wallet in the country. But you know who the number two digital wallet in the country is? It's Starbucks and their virtual currency. So, so we definitely see that it is absolutely possible for sometimes we call legacy brands, pre-digital, pre-digital brands to stand toe-to-toe and compete absolutely with anybody in the marketplace. But you're absolutely right. Most are behind. But I just want to make that point before we talk about why they're behind that less Anyone listening who who works for a big company should think, oh, man, we're doomed, right? (laughs) (laughs) Very good point. (laughs) Right, because they absolutely can. But you're right. They have hurdles to overcome. So first of all, um, you know, the larger you are, the more of a mess you have potentially to clean up to get to where you want to be. Because in a pre-digital world, you know, people would often interface with one division of your company. And so if all your different product areas did things differently, it didn't matter so much. And things were much more siloed, you know, and, and they might you know, buy from you in one way, but get their customer support another way. And things tended to be very, very isolated and not well integrated. And the, because there wasn't a a way of easily moving through a kind of an omni-channel journey, customers didn't really notice so much. And what digital does is kind of turns the lights on and all of a sudden you realize what a mess you have. And so, so I guess all I'm trying to say is it's a lot of work for some of these big companies. They have legacy mainframe systems that run their business. And sometimes the last person who actually knew how the mainframe was programmed retired two years ago. And sometimes they'll talk to you on the phone for a few minutes if you have a burning question. You know, it's tough when you're running your business on old technology, confusing old processes, siloed data. You've got a lot of work to do. Uh, you know, it's a little bit like painting yourself into a corner. You know, it's it's a little easier when a company built things right, right from the ground. So that's the first reason, which is that uh, the, the sort of legacy technical debt if you will, and process debt and all that. Um, I think a second reason is resistance to change. Um, a lot of the people who work at those companies, you know, they signed up to work at a certain type of company that operated in a certain way. Many have been there a long time. 
And digital requires, you know, when, when all digital was, was like in my early days, an experimental little thing for, you know, these kind of niche audience of, of early adopters. Who cares, right? Okay, that's cool. That's cute. It doesn't change our business. It doesn't threaten anything. It's just some little side project, whatever, right? But when all of a sudden you go to a company and you say, hey, you know, we could close half our branches or half our stores or half our office locations or what have you, because we can do things in a much more effective way. The customers are going to like better. You know, somebody's career is threatened by that. Somebody's empire is measured by how many, you know, staff members they have on their team or, or how much budget they have. And that person is probably going to become the enemy of whatever transformation you're trying to propose. And so, um, and then there's other people who just don't like change in general. You know, if you've ever remodeled your kitchen, you know that it's hell. And you go through, even if you've got this great result that you're headed towards, you go through a period which is, you know, very, very awkward and uncomfortable. And some people just don't want to deal with it. You know, they, they would like to believe that they can just keep doing things uh, the, way that, uh, the way that they have been. You know, hey, it's worked for us for 25 years. Why do we have to change now? That kind of mindset. <laughs> so these are some of the things we actually go into detail in the book. I think there's something like 12 reasons people resist change and then another 12 techniques to overcome it. So I can't I don't want to try to touch on them all here only because we only have so much time. But but those are some of the big ones. Um, it's tough. The psychology of human beings is always the biggest one. You know, it's funny. I mentioned before the biggest thing that a business can do to be successful is to effectively influence the behavior of their customers. and you know, the second thing, which is really the thing we're talking about now, influence the behavior of their employees and get their employees to embrace change rather than resist it. And that's also, that's a, that's a tough task. It is indeed. The, I, I think the most frequent phrase that I heard during change transformation initiatives was this too shall pass from some of our employees. Just wait it out. You know, yeah. they'll, somebody else will come in and change it all again anyhow. So right, I'll just right. It's the flavor of the month. Yeah. It's the flavor of the and, month. Exactly. Well, and, 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 and very often that may happen. Number one, because of the problems we talked about earlier, because it might be an ill-conceived transformation to begin with. And at a certain point, people will see that. Or it might simply be a transformation that's going to take some time because very few transformations are, you know, overnight. They usually take years. And if there's sufficient resistance, eventually the resistors can win out. It's too much. It's too much to try to keep fighting your entire company to try to get something done, even if you're the CEO. And so, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, it's, sometimes it's just easier to give in, or at least it feels that way. And then the problem is that you become one of those companies that everyone's looking around and it's kind of embarrassed at the experience you're giving your, your customers. And then your employees don't feel good working there. And then you lose your top talent and you wind up with the people who are staying are the ones that are resistant to change. And um, they're not energized to, you know, it becomes a, a sort of a vicious, vicious cycle versus the opposite, which is you drive change, you drive transformation. And what happens? You actually repel the people who dislike change. You have attrition, but who's leaving? They're the people who don't like change, the people who are resistant. And meanwhile, because you're changing, who do you attract? You attract people who love change. You attract people who want to drive things forward, both employees and customers. And, you know, but, but you have to be willing to suffer some pain of realizing that when that organization changes, it's like, um, you know, like in the X-Men, when the guy Wolverine, he has to transform and his like uh, knives come out, you know, it's like they cut through his skin, you know, and mm -hmm. how many times do you see one of those things in a, in a science fiction film? You know, I was watching the new Star Trek series the other day 
and they have some method for making them look like the aliens that are on the planet. And they in- inject some genes to make Kirk, not Kirk, what's the guy's name? Pike, right? The, the guy mm-hmm. who's the captain look more like the aliens on the planet so he can go down and, and be camouflaged. But, you know, but it's painful, right? Because these little, these little ridges are forming on his brow and his skin is changing and he's, he's, he's in pain. And I think that, you know, that's kind of a good metaphor because change often does mean pain. And, you know, there's that old um, thing that they paint on the walls of wrestling rooms in high schools, you know, no, no pain, no gain. (laughs) I would say no pain, no change, you know, is another (laughs) is another phrase there. And it's just true. You know, change does tend to equal pain and it's only natural people try to avoid pain. But the problem is that there's greater pain from not changing because they're standing on a burning platform, literally. And if they don't make the change, they're going to wind up another Toys R Us. Exactly. Well, well stated. Uh, we could talk for hours, Howard. This has been great. Howard Tursky, author of Winning Digital Customers, the anecdote for, uh, excuse me, the anecdote to irrelevance. Before I let you go, Howard, where are we headed? What's your view of, uh, look in your crystal ball and tell us where we're headed. Well, frankly, Bob, we're doomed. We might as well give up. <laughs> give it up now, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I think I think the truth is, um, you know, we're living in, in perhaps one of the most exciting times in in thousands of years. The the transformation of our society, of our of our capabilities as a, as a as a species is is unbelievable. And what we're going to see in the coming years from artificial intelligence, from robotics, from drones, from three D printing, from blockchain technology, which is going to enable all kinds of previously impossible types of applications, is going to be even more dizzying than what we've seen in the past. And what that means is that businesses are more threatened than they've ever been, because in times of rapid change, if you can't move rapidly, then somebody's probably going to come along and and uh, and steal your customers and steal your business and make you obsolete. And on the flip side, for those that are able to move at the necessary speed and velocity and uh, embrace the change, there's greater opportunities for growth than in times that are more stagnant. So it's and, and I think it's an exciting time to be a consumer if you like cool new stuff. On the other hand, if you're someone who gets frustrated that, you know, every phone that comes out is different and, and they keep expecting you to do things in different ways. And now there's biometrics and self-driving cars and you just wish it was the way it used to be in the old days. Well, then I don't know what to say. Then, then, <laughs> then you're, you're, you're out of luck. You're uh, out of luck. Maybe, you're on your own. Maybe we should create communities, you know, like, like something like the Truman Show that, you know, where we stop everything, you know. And there's just bank tellers and like people can go live in those communities. And because I want everybody to be happy. You know, I get that not everybody loves all this stuff. I do. Um, I'm fortunate that what I love is, is was what's what's happening and what's changing in the world. So but um, yeah, I think that's the you know, the it's hard to predict the specifics of the future. But I say bet on change, bet on more rapid transformation, because I, I don't see any any uh, barring other than some catas- cataclysmic event that sends us into some post-apocalyptic world. Uh, I think we're going to see more change, more more capabilities, amazing changes in healthcare, and and you know from from genetic engineering and things like that. The next twenty thirty years, uh, we're not going to recognize the world thirty years from now. And and after all, where were we thirty years ago? You know, the eighties, exactly. the nineties. Uh, you know, just think about how different the world was then. I think we can expect ten times more change between now and thirty years from now than we've had in the last thirty years, and and that's going to be amazing. And as they say in technology, it's exponentially accelerating away from Mm -hmm. us. So it's Mm -hmm. true. Listeners, I hope you go get Howard's book. And also, by the way, as I mentioned earlier, he writes some very intriguing articles on LinkedIn. So follow him along there too. Howard, thanks for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We really appreciate it. 
Listeners, this has been another episode of the All Things Considered CX Podcast. I'm Bob Asman. As always, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your networks and, and stay tuned for future episodes. And we are now available on YouTube as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of All Things Considered CX. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your colleagues. Subscribe to our show. Follow me on LinkedIn and visit my website at InnovativeCX.com for more insights on creating better experiences. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit CXofM.org for more resources.